prayed and your glory descended uh, and filled the place that even the priests couldn't stand to even serve because your presence was so overwhelming. And we trust and believe this morning, Lord, that because of Jesus and the resurrection, that we stand, sit, kneel before you here cleansed and qualified, Lord, to be filled with that same spirit and that same glory. And so we're asking this morning, Lord, as we set aside this time, that your presence would fill this room even now. That your holiness, that your majesty, that your glory, that your essence would fill each one of our hearts and fill, fill this room. And that your presence would so overwhelm us, Lord, as we sit before you and as we listen to your word and as we allow you to do your work within us. And so we're asking you, Lord, that we might know you, that we might drink of the water of life, that we might breathe of your living breath, Lord, and that we might learn of you as you've invited us to do. You said, learn of me. And so, Lord, would you please take this time and take each one of our hearts and take this word and this study. And, Lord, that you would set us apart as your peculiar treasure this morning. And that you would perfect your work in us according to what you've spoken. Lord, none of us in here are worthy of what we're asking. But you told us to boldly approach the throne of grace that we might obtain help in time of need. And so, Lord, for each one of our lives, we ask today that you would please be the Lord and the God of all that we are. And that you would teach us and lead us according to your truth and your plan for each one of us. And we ask these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. The whole purpose behind what we're doing here, um, whether it be the discipleship in general, or whether it be the study of the life of David, is that ultimately that we would know God. That's our purpose. It isn't that we might uh, say we did it, and it isn't that we might uh, obtain some kind of an intellectual knowledge or understanding of a part of the Bible or a character of the Bible, uh, but that we might know God. That's the end of all things. There's no other purpose. There's no other reason. Uh, there's no other profit in anything else but, but to understand. The, the Lord spoke through Jeremiah to the people, and he said, that, let him that glories glory in this. He said, don't let the wise man glory in his wisdom, and don't let the strong man glory in his strength. But let him that glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. And there is no greater uh, pursuit or treasure in all the world than to just simply know him. And where a study of David's life begins really is at the end, which is why I asked you to turn to First Chronicles chapter 28. Because when David, on the other side of everything that he experienced in this life, and lay a dying, he spoke to his son Solomon, and saying what an old dying man would say to his young son, who's on the upside of the hill of his life, David utters these words. It's in chapter 28, and it's in verse 9, that David speaks to his son, and through him to us. He says, And you, Solomon, my son, know thou the God of thy father, and serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts, and understands all the imaginations of the thoughts. 
If you seek him, he will be found of you. But if you forsake him, he will cast thee off forever. Take heed now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. And so what David essentially says to Solomon at the very end of his life, after having walked with God for some 60 years, and now seeing Solomon on the rise and on the up and coming, he says to him, Solomon, if I can encapsulate all of life into three uh, simple instructions that I would pass on to you, uh, he would say that number one and the most important of, what, uh, of them all by far is that you would know God, that you would know the God of your father, that that is, that is the highest pursuit. And when you really think about, you know, every um, person in the Bible or any person that has ever lived that has lived a successful life or, or a fruitful life, uh, then that is the mark that, that distinguishes them from anybody else, is that they have known God. The Apostle Paul, who had uh, the highest of, of experiences throughout his life, both before and after coming to a knowledge of God, he would say that everything that was ever counted as gain to me, he says, these I've counted loss for Christ. And he says, for all that it is, all that those things are, he says, I count them as rubbish on one side in exchange that on the other side, I might know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering. And if by any means I might be made into what a he is seeking to make me into. And that is the highest aim of all of life, is to know God. Not to know about God. There's a, there's a world of difference. You can know things about a person and yet still not know them. When you know things about a person, you can describe them, you can uh, repeat things that you've heard. But when you know a person, you can know what they're thinking without hearing a word. You can know what they want and what they like. You can be in tune with them. You can walk into the room and they, without even a word, just a, with barely a glimpse. There's something there where there's a connection that's underneath the surface that runs deeper than uh, anything external that is so real and so uh, intimate that, that you know them. And it's a heart connection. And that is the relationship that God wants with his people. He doesn't want us to know about him. He wants us to know him. And David, on the other side of everything that he experiences, he looks at his son Solomon and he says, Solomon, know him. Know him. And what God says to you and I this morning, his purpose in drawing us here, his purpose in calling us into his son, his purpose in shedding his blood on the cross and redeeming us to himself is that we might know him. And if we do all other things, if we serve him, if we bear much fruit for him, if we win souls for him, all of that in God's mind is nothing. He wants us to know him. When Jesus said concerning the two roads and concerning the judgment of those that, uh, that don't make it on that day, it says that those that, that are on his left, that are cast aside, that they look at him and they say to him, didn't we teach in your name? Didn't we cast out demons and do many wonderful works? And what was the word of Jesus to them? He says, depart from me. I never knew you. That's the purpose. That's what God wants from our lives, that we might know him. Second of all, he says to him, serve him. Second of all, serve his purposes. The, the, the end of all things in our lives is that we might know what his cause is for us and that we might then join in that cause and bear fruit in that cause. And so what is it that God has made us for? There's a reason. It's, it is to know him. That is paramount, always primary. But secondarily, there is uh, a, a desire for us to serve him. He wants us 
um, to, to, to find, to search out what it is that he has for us, and then to serve him. And then the third thing, uh, if you look at verse 10 there in First Chronicles 28, notice what he says. He says, take heed now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Now, that command or that charge comes on the other side of a warning. And that warning was that if you seek him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind, those are the two things that he says that are the way that we're to seek him. With a perfect heart, that just means that our heart is to be completely yielded to him. And a willing mind, meaning that we're willing. And he says, if you do that, then God will be with you. And if not, then you'll miss out. And then the warning is take heed. And then he gives him the charge. He says, build him a sanctuary. Now, that's amazing to me because for Solomon, that was literal. His mission, his work was to build the temple that the, the Israelites would worship in. But the charge carries over even to us because the Bible says that we are the temple of the living God. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that we have this treasure, the treasure of God's presence, in earthen jars or jars of clay, that the excellence of the glory might be of God and not of us. We are the living stones that make up the temple of God. And the charge that David's life gives to us this morning is that not only would we know him and not only would we serve him, but that we would give ourselves to being a fitting habitation for his presence, that our hearts and lives would be that temple that he could live in. But he says, take heed, because here's the reality, is that many will venture out on this quest and yet somehow come short of it in some way because of, of an imperfect heart, a divided heart, or because of an unwilling mind, and we have a part to play. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. Have you ever heard the phrase, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? I think that that's going to be one of the things in heaven that makes God throw up. <laughs> Not that God doesn't love you. We know absolutely that he does. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But it is probably one of the biggest misnomers or misconceptions or misguided statements ever to say that God has a wonderful plan for your life. Let me be the first to tell you here this morning, if you've never heard it, God does not have a wonderful plan for your life. God has a wonderful plan in himself. And out of his grace and love, he invites each one of us to be a part in it. And if we're willing, he has a part for every one of us in his plan. But it is not a guarantee that we will absolutely be a part of that plan. And it certainly isn't a man-centric plan that God has. God's plan is his plan. It's something that he's been working from the foundation of the world, and it's something that has a direction, and it's moving somewhere, and it has a culmination. And he gives the invitation to every single one of us to be a part of that plan. And he's created us to have a part in it. But that doesn't mean necessarily that we're going to find that plan. And what David's life testifies to us is not about God having a wonderful plan for your life. It testifies that God has a wonderful plan and that he is constantly looking for those whom he can call and choose 
that will yield themselves to his purpose for their life that he might show himself strong in their behalf. The two key verses that encapsulate David's life as it relates to God's plan for him are first of all 1 Samuel chapter 13 verse 14. You don't have to turn there. You can ask me later, but I'll read it to you here. It says there in that verse that the Lord has sought him a man. That the Lord has sought him a man. In other words, God had something that he wanted to do and he was looking for someone that he could use to perform that plan. The Lord sought him a plan. And then the other verse is in Psalm chapter 89, verse 20. And it also concerns David. It says, I have found David my servant. So the Lord sought him a man and the Lord found David his servant to fulfill and to carry out that plan. So all this to say is this. It's just to think that, okay, well, because I am on this earth and because I am a Christian, therefore God has a wonderful plan for my life and that's just it, it, it and it's going to happen no matter what. That is not the case. God calls us to an active pursuit of himself. And it's in that complete dedication of my life to him and the surrendering of my will to his will for my life, that's where I find my, my place in his plan, and that's ultimately the goal of all of life. And if I find that, if I end up in that place, then I've led a successful life. If I do not, then no matter what else I've done on this earth, I have wasted the time of my existence here. And what David's life testifies to us this morning, and the reason why we would study it at all, is that we might find ourselves like David with a heart that is perfect towards God, that is completely yielded to him, and that we might have a willing mind to do anything at all that he has asked us to do or that he made us to do in his plan and in his pursuit. So what is the plan of God in the world? Well, we know that it started with the creation, that God made the heavens and the earth in seven days. Part of that creation was the formation of man for whom he made all of the other things that he made. In the process of that creation, God planted two trees, one of the knowledge of good and evil, and the other of the tree of life. And he gave to man one command and a choice and an ultimatum. He said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so he left man with a choice of whether he would obey and listen and yield to God, or whether he would rebel and go his own way, move himself out of the governance of God, and under self-rule. That's what the knowledge of good and evil produces. It produces self-rule. And the ultimatum was life or death. And the choice was in the hand of man. And so we know what happened from there. There was a serpent and there was a temptation. And that was followed by a train wreck. Adam and Eve fell into sin. And, and in so doing, they brought a curse upon all of humanity. Everyone that ever lived after that came under that. And, and from that time... That, that Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden, everything that happened in all of man's history was funneling towards the cross of Christ, the time when God would enact his plan of redemption in the world where he would come in the flesh and that he would uh, um, um, lay down his life as a ransom for the sins of the world. 
And so you have uh, the, 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 the coming and the calling of Noah and the flood. Uh, and then you have um, Noah and his three sons and their wives coming off of the boat. And then you have the, the line and the descendants of Shem, one of the three sons of Noah, that would ultimately give birth in, uh, seven or eight or nine generations later to a man named Abraham. And through Abraham, God would uh, establish a nation, calling his son Isaac and then his son Jacob. And then through him, birthing 12 sons that would become the 12 tribes or counties, if you would, uh, of what would become the nation of Israel. And ultimately of those 12 sons, God would single out the tribe or the family of Judah. And through then the line of Judah, God decides that the lion will come. That is that the son of God, Jesus, will come into the world through that lion or through that tribe of Judah uh, that he had called. And so Israel goes from those 12 sons and Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt where all of Jacob's descendants spend 400 years in slavery. They're called out of Egypt at the hand of Moses and Joshua. They're brought into the wilderness for a span of 40 years. From there, Joshua, at the death of Moses, brings the children of Israel into the promised land, the land that God had promised to Abraham some 400 years previously. He dispossesses it from the hand of the Canaanites that had rebelled so far against God that there was no more redemption from them. And he gave it to the 12 tribes of Israel, dividing to each tribe a settlement. And from there, he establishes their root and their seed in the land. From there, we move into the period of the judges, where for, again, 400 years, God raises up leaders to bring the people back to God. And there's a series of revivals and apostasies that span that time of 400 years while God seeks to, 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 to bring his nation into establishment and bring them into uh, um, fulfillment uh, and completion. But we see that in that span of the judges, the children of Israel digressed so far from the heart of God and from the purposes of God, that at the end of that time, the only thing that God can say when he looks at the nation is that every man does what's right in his own eyes. And the heart of the people were far from God. And so it was a time of transition at the end of the period of the judges, where God had seen that the people's heart was estranged from him, and it was time for God to shift gears and enact the next phase of his plan. And the nation of Israel, bringing forth Christ, would now move from this period of the judges to what we call in the Bible, the period of the kings. And so we have an era change that's taking place as we come to the beginning of uh, 1 Samuel, the beginning of a new era to further set the stage for Christ. But I, I go through all of that and bring us up to, to where we are at the beginning of 1 Samuel, because the point is that all of what exists, everything that has ever happened or ever will, it exists for God's purposes. It's his plan. He's been orchestrating it all along, and he will orchestrate it all the way unto the end. It exists for him, it's for his purpose, and ultimately, it is for his glory now that he is going to shift gears and bring in this period of the kings. The highlight of the period of the kings is the reign of King David. He was the gold standard and, in God's eyes, the first and great king of Israel. Of course, there was King Saul. We'll talk about him. You cannot have a study of David and not talk about Saul. But David was the one that God ultimately was looking for and the one that God was raising up. 
David in the Bible is known by many names, of course, David, but also he was called the sweet psalmist of Israel because of his uh, music and because of the psalms and the poetry that he wrote, much of which is recorded for us in the Bible. He's also known uh, throughout, throughout history and in the Bible as the man after God's own heart, a man who was so yielded to God that God was able to shape his heart like clay upon a wheel, soft and pliable in the hand of the potter. And God was able to form within this man a heart that was the very reflection of God himself. And so he's called a man after God's own heart. He's also called the anointed of the God of Jacob. And that uh, says so much if you break that apart, and we won't take the time to do it, but he was a man that was called of God to serve the purposes that were initially ordained in Jacob or in Israel itself. One of the greatest references to David in the Bible is spoken by Jesus himself. It's one of the last things that Jesus says way at the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 22. When Jesus is signing off and the Bible is about complete, You'll see that there's just one sentence of red letters at the end of the book of Revelation where Jesus is authoring the book. He's saying, this is my signet or signature upon all that's been written. And he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel. And he said, I am, and he identifies himself there. He says, I am the root and the offspring of David. And it's one of the most beautiful references to David in the entire Bible when Jesus identifies himself with David as Jesus being the root and the offspring of David. And I want you to just think about that for just a minute. He's the root of David. What does that mean? The root is what supports the plant, which means that what Jesus is saying is that David grew out of Jesus. David's entire life and ministry was rooted in or took its root or found its root in Jesus. He was the root. He was the one that fed it and made it what it was. But he wasn't just the root. He was also the offspring of David. And the reference, of course, is to the fact that Jesus Christ came through the lineage of King David. That the incarnation of Jesus into the world was the byproduct of David's life. And generations, 14 generations after David, would come Jesus the Christ into the world, and thus Jesus was also the offspring of David. And it's a beautiful uh, uh, picture of Jesus as being both the root and the offspring of David. And we see him as the author and the finisher of David's life. Another amazing thing about King David is, is, is the stem. Uh, it talks about the stem of Jesse and where David came from. And you just think about some of the posterity of where David came from. And this should give us hope because, you know, some of us here, we think, well, and I've thought this myself, is that I'm no David. You know, who am I to, to look into the life of David and think that I'll ever have any comparison to him? I want you to think for just a moment of where David came from. First of all, do you remember the, remember the, the, the span when Rahab, the harlot, the prostitute, uh, was saved in Jericho? Remember, a scarlet cord, stay in your room, and the walls fell down everywhere, but Rahab survived, this prostitute who was a Canaanite, sentenced to die, and yet because of her faith, she was spared. Well, the story of Rahab is that after her uh, salvation, she was assimilated into the, the family of Judah, and she married a man whose name was Salmon, S-A-L-M-O-N, just like the fish, and Rahab and Salmon had a son whose name was Boaz. And Boaz 
came into a relationship with a Gentile Moabite woman, again, a disqualified, accursed person whose name was Ruth. And Boaz and Ruth were married. They had a son whose name was Obed, who then gave posterity, or he sired another son named Jesse, and Jesse gave birth to a young man, the seventh son, a ruddy young youth with no seeming potential, whose name was David. And so God took a prostitute and a pagan Moabite woman, and through what they brought into the family of Israel, God brought forth who was esteemed to be a useless shepherd boy who became the root and the offspring that would be Jesus. An amazing thing what God can do with any life, no matter what its past or present dictates. And so we study the life of this man, David. Now, the circumstances in these days that brought forth King David are extremely essential to us in our understanding of, of, of David's life and, and really of our place and what God wants to do with us. And understand this, if I've tuned you out, tune back in here, is that any time God is going to use a man in his plan, in whatever phase of life it is or, or, or of God's plan, whether it's then or now, there are two things that make up the enacting of that plan. Number one is the circumstances outwardly. And that would be the setting or the stage or the time or the, 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 the providential events that make up that, the inaction of that plan. And that's something that God is doing. It's outward. It has very little to do with us personally. But that's part of what's essential is the stage or the scene, the outward circumstances. The other element in God's plan and our part in God's plan is the work that he's doing in us to prepare us for what we're going to do or what we're going to be in it. And both of those things are essential. Not only that we are prepared, but that also the scene is prepared and things are set for us. And both of those things are necessary. Purpose and time. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 1 says that there is a time for every purpose under heaven. Purpose is the circumstances. Time is you and I, and the time that we come into what that purpose ultimately is. And so what were the circumstances, and that's what we turn our attention to here, that brought forth the coming of David, the first king of Israel? And that's a, a, an important thing for us to understand as we move forward. Now, there are three things that God needs to set in order before he brings David on the scene. God needs three things before David can become the king. Number one is that he needs a prophet. And not only a prophet, but he needs a leading prophet or a prophet who is a judge. Someone whom God can use as a mediator of himself to the nation during this time of transition. And so God needs to raise up a prophet or a judge. The second thing that God needs during this time of transition is that he needs a system to die. I told you previously that the period of the judges that up and down roller coaster of Israel's history is coming to a close. And anytime God is going to do a new thing upon the earth or pour out his spirit in a fresh way, it necessitates the death of the old system. So that is something that is necessary is the system needs to die. And then the third thing that God needs before he can bring David onto the scene is that God needs a very special instrument that he is extremely good at making and extremely effective at using, and that is that God needs a kingmaker. 
And I don't know if you've ever seen a kingmaker before, but I, but I can guarantee you that every single one of us, if we will open our eyes wide enough, will see that somewhere in our lives there is a kingmaker. <laughs> that there is a person or a set of people in our lives that God is using or wants to use as a kingmaker. And so God needs those three things, and God is going to bring forth those three things. He's going to bring forth a prophet who is also a judge. He's going to bring forth the death of a system, and he's going to bring forth a kingmaker. And all of those things are happening in the hundred years leading up to David's life and calling. And I want you to understand this in case I forget to say it again later, is that the things that God has prepared for those whose hearts are perfect towards him have been in the works and in the making for a hundred years before you were even born. God has been working the dials. God has been setting things the way he's been setting things. And what he's looking for now, as he prepares the circumstances, is he's looking for a heart that's willing and wanting to be a part of his plan. And so as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 1 this morning, we look at the first part of God's preparation of setting things ready for the bringing in of King David, and that is the raising up of a prophet who is also a judge. Next week, we're going to look at the, the second part, is that is the death of the old system. Very important study. Don't miss out. Don't think that that's a waste of time. It's important. And then number three we'll look at in the third week will be the kingmaker, that is King Saul, whom God raises up for the very purpose of forging the heart of a faithful king. And don't miss that either. You don't want to miss these. <laughs> these are important, important things uh, that, that need to happen, not just in David, but also in us as we look at them in the Bible. All three of those three things happen in the first 15 chapters of 1 Samuel. So we won't look at all 15 of those chapters, but we will look at the things that God does within them. I want you to understand something uh, just before we look at the text in 1 Samuel um, chapter 1 here. And that is understand this, that God never prostitutes people in the posturing of his plans. He has a plan and he's going to bring it forth and he's going to use people to do it. But he never prostitutes a life, meaning that he uses it for his purposes and then casts it aside. And, and maybe just gives it its wages or throws something at it. Okay, well, you know, here, you, I'm, not, I'm a debtor to no man. I've used your life, but so now I'm going to give you. He doesn't do that. He never does that. If God is going to use a life, and if you and I bring our hearts to him and we say, God, I want you to use my life, then that means that he is absolutely committed to us and to bringing forth within our lives everything that we would need, not only for the plan, but also that we would want, meaning himself. He is going to enrich our lives with himself. And so as we look at all of what God is doing and bringing forth the scene for David, we're never going to see God use someone uselessly and throw them aside. He cares for each life. God could have brought forth a Samuel in completely different ways and by completely different methods than what he does if he was a prostitutor of people's lives. But he always works in tandem with people to bring forth his plan. And so we see God's dealing with a young woman named Hannah and how God used and worked in her life to bring forth the prophet judge that he needed to bring forth ultimately King David. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 1 and notice the beginning of the scene, the beginning of the story of the life of King David. It says, Now there was a certain man of Ramath Zophim, of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, 
the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. And so God finds this man, Elkanah, a man who we'll see is dedicated and consecrated unto God, a man who is a worshiper of God and who's seeking God and his purposes for his life, a man who is not from Jerusalem or that area, a man who's not from the tribe of Judah, of whom God will ultimately deal with. But God finds a man in Israel, the tribe of Ephraim, whose name is Elkanah, whom he can use. And it says in verse 2 that he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Panina. And Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man, Elkanah, went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Now, that is significant because at this period of Israel's history, the people that were living in the northern tribes were not obeying this command, which was to go to the place that God had chosen. But there were competing altars at various places around Israel, and the people out of convenience would go to those places rather than to Shiloh where God had ordained. And so we see in this man Elkanah not only a desire, but also the performance of those things that God commands. He goes to the place that God has chosen. And so he went to, to Shiloh, and the two sons of Eli, they'll come into the story next week again, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Penina his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters portions. Now part of the sacrificial ritual is that you would bring your offering, your lamb or your bull or whatever it was that you had at that season. You would bring it to the priest who would then uh, sacrifice it unto the Lord. And then he would take a chunk of the meat that was offered and he would burn it before the Lord as a sacrifice. And then he would return to you the remainder of the sacrifice and you would then enjoy that with your family. And the picture and the idea is that you were sharing a meal with God. He was partaker of part, and you were a partaker of the other. And therefore, you were becoming one with him in this act of sacrifice. And so Elkanah takes a portion of what's given back to him, and he gives some to Penina, and some to her sons, and some to her daughters. But, it says in verse 5, unto Hannah, he gave a worthy portion or a double portion, a greater portion than he gave to everyone else. And here's why. For he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb, meaning that she was barren. Panina, having children, left, right, and center like a human Pez machine. <laughs> and Hannah, unable to bear, having a barren womb. Now, you might think that this is just okay, this is the fact of the matter, but I want you to see the effect that this barrenness had on this woman, Hannah. And it says that her adversary, that would be Panina, she has a nickname, adversary, also provoked her sore for to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. And so as is the case when a man takes more than one wife or has a competing affection within his life, one is always set above the other. What did Jesus say? You cannot have two masters. In other words, paraphrase, let me give you the message translation of that. You cannot have two wives. <laughs> a master in Greek, Aramaic, wife, same word. You know. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> but if a man does have two wives, then absolutely he's asking for trouble. 
Because certainly there's going to be one that's favored and one that's not, and there's going to be strife within the home. We saw this with Rachel and Leah, didn't we, in our study of Jacob's life. It can't happen. And so Hannah is preferred. She is loved, but she's barren. And so Panina, who's having children, uses the great desire of all women, the desire to have children, as a thorn in the side of this woman, Hannah, to the point where she causes her to fret because of the provocation. And it says that she caused her to weep and she did not eat. Then, verse 8, Elkanah, the wise man that he was, her husband said unto her, Hannah, why weepest thou? Men, we like to fix things, right? Let's just fix this. And why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am not I better to thee than ten sons? This guy knows his wife, doesn't he? And he knows the heart of a woman, not so much. So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh and after they had drunk, and Eli the priest sat upon a seat by a post, by the or by a post of the temple of the Lord. And so I want you to see the dynamics of what's happening here in Hannah's heart. She has a desire for something that God at this point only has the power to give her. Elkanah has no power to open up her womb, neither is there any physician or doctor nor procedure that she can do to fix the thing that she is so greatly desiring. What she wants is completely in the hand of God, and at this point for his cause, he is withholding it from her and it is tearing her apart inside. She can receive no help or aid from any human instrument at all whatsoever, and there's not another living soul on the planet that understands what she's going through or what she's feeling inside. And what this does, as it's designed to do, is that it drives her to the Lord. Notice, it says, Hannah rose up early after they had eaten and drunk. And it says in verse 10 that she was in bitterness of soul and she prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. She pours out her heart and her complaint before God. And she vowed a vow. Now, this is ultimately where God is bringing her. And said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. Now, don't all shout out at once, but when you read that phrase, no razor shall come upon his head, who does that make you think of? Say it all together. Samson, okay? What she's saying here is that he will be a Nazarite or he will be dedicated completely unto you. I will make sure. I will see to it with everything that is in my power to do, that this young life is consecrated to you and that it serves your purposes and your purposes only. If you'll grant this my request, then God, I will give this child to you. That is exactly what God was waiting for and what God was looking for. And so it came to pass that as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli marked her mouth. Now Hannah, she spoke in her heart only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. And Eli said unto her, how long will you be drunk? Now, even the priest doesn't know what she's going through. Even the man of God, the pastor, whom she's you know, seeking counsel of or would seek counsel from, even he doesn't know what she's feeling inside. He supposes her to be a lunatic. Put away your wine from you. And Hannah answered and said, no, my Lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. 
Count not thine handmaid for a daughter of Belial, or a daughter of Satan. For out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hitherto. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that you have asked of him. And she said, Let thine handmaiden find grace in thy sight. So the woman went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. Notice what the pouring out of the heart before the Lord does to the life. You see that? What no man could bring forth through his counsel or comfort, what no priest or prophet or pastor could bring forth through his assessment of a situation and his contribution to what he thought was going on. When a person brings their complaint in the burden of their heart to God alone, and pours it out before him, notice the immediate effect it has upon that life. It says that her countenance was no more sad, and that she rose up, worshipped, returned, and it says also that she did eat. So all of the things that she was prevented from doing previously, she was so sad she couldn't eat. The tears are dried, her appetite is returned, and her countenance is lifted, and nothing has changed. Isn't that amazing? Nothing has changed. The circumstances are completely the same when she goes back home that morning as they were when she left. But she is completely different. Listen, the presence of the Lord changes us. The presence of the Lord changes us. That is the answer so often to our prayer. Not the thing that we're seeking, but the one whom we're seeking it from. He's the one that changes things. Would to God that we would learn the lesson of seeking him and not the it. God said to Abraham, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Abraham's reply, what are you going to give me? Seeing I go childless. No, 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 no. You're missing it, Abraham. It's me. Would that we would know him. To know him is the highest answer of all. She worshiped before the Lord and she returned. And she came to the house of Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah. That means they, they had relations together. And the Lord remembered her. It's not that he had forgotten. He heard her prayer, and the time came. Wherefore, it came to pass that when the time was come, and that's always the case. You could circle those words in your Bible if you want. Those are important words. When the time was come. After Hannah had conceived that she bare a son, and she called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. And the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer unto the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah stayed home, for she said unto her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned, and then I will bring him, that he may appear before the Lord and abide there forever. She's going to keep her vow. So many people make a vow to God and then God fulfills the thing that they've asked and then they say, thanks God, have a nice life. See you when I get to heaven. But Hannah has prepared her heart fully that she is going to follow through on the thing that she has dedicated unto God. He will abide there forever and he will abide there forever. And Elkanah, her husband, said unto her, do what seems good. Tarry thou until you have weaned him. Only the Lord establish his word. So the woman abode and gave her son suck until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her and three bullocks and one ephah of flour and a bottle of wine. And she brought him unto the house of the Lord in Shiloh and the child was young. And they slew a bullock and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, 
O my Lord, as thy soul liveth, my Lord, lowercase l, I am the woman that stood by thee here praying unto the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I have asked of him. Therefore, also I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord, and he worshipped the Lord there. And so not only does Hannah follow through on this vow that she makes, she actually leaves him there. Talk about daycare. <laughs> you know, she, she brings this young child, and it says, and the child was young. And she brings him to the temple, and she says, remember when you granted my prayer? You got more than what you bargained for, because he's going to stay. And Samuel was given to God that he might be influenced in the fullest way possible by the things of God in the, in, the, in the coming up of his life. And his life is going to be influenced or the byproduct of the influence of his life. This is the reason why we do baby dedications uh, in, in the church. It's after the pattern of what Hannah did in dedicating Samuel unto the Lord. That it was in this dedication that she brought to him that she asked the prayer of God that he would that he would have his work and his way in Samuel's life. And then what she did is this, and this is this is for us dads, listen, is that she did everything in her power to make sure that her son would be influenced in the things of God in the greatest way he could. And there was no greater way than that he be as acquainted with the temple and the worship of God in the temple as he could. It's a foolish thing for a parent to dedicate their children to the Lord and think that the, because they prayed a prayer or they presented him to the church, that somehow that that means that God is just going to, you know, make a Samuel out of that child. We have a job to do as parents on the other side of that dedication. And that is to make sure that our kids as f are as fully influenced in the things of God as we possibly can influence them in. And that will bear fruit within their lives. I remember a man who was greatly used of God, talked about the, the, um, the, the upbringing that he had in a Christian home. And he said, as he um, preached from a pulpit, having led thousands uh, of, of people to Christ in his lifetime and leading a very fruitful ministry all the way up through his death, he said, when I was a boy, he said, my parents drugged me to church. And he said, and then they drugged me to Sunday school. And then they drugged me to youth group. And then they drugged me to Bible studies. And they drugged me to home fellowships. And they drugged me to be around with other Christians. And he said, everywhere, everything that had to do with God, they drugged me there. And then he stopped and paused for a minute, and then he smiled. And he said, the effects of the drugs still haven't worn off. <laughs> And it's absolutely true that, that the influence that we put in, in, in the lives of our kids to influence them in the things of God will have an effect on them later in life. And Hannah brings her son to the Lord and she dedicates him there to the Lord. As we close, I just want to give to you five uh, closing points of application uh, to think through concerning the things that we've seen here this morning. Number one, and you can write these down or you can get them from me later if you just want to listen for now. But number one is that God uses barrenness in our lives in order that our hearts will search out his cause and our desires will find their right place. God uses barrenness in our lives in order that our hearts will search out his cause 
and our desires will find their right place. God is the one who places the desires that we have in our hearts. He puts those desires there. And every one of us in this room has a different set of, of desires and ambitions, some that are worldly and that need to die, and God will take those things out. And some things that are absolutely from him. And he put them there, but he put them there for his purposes and not for ours. We enjoy them, but they're not there for our purposes. They're there for his purposes. And sometimes, in fact, many times, God will withhold the fulfillment of those desires while we search out what is his purpose for those desires. And it's when our hearts come into alignment with his purposes that God then grants those desires within our heart. Hannah wanted a son. God wanted a prophet. And when Hannah's desire was in line with God's plan, then God brought the desire to pass within her life. And so often in our lives, God has something for us. He has something great for us. It's the thing that we've been waiting for, that our heart longs and cries for. But the purpose of that desire in our mind is yet unrealized. Or it is spent or consumed somehow on something that we want for ourselves. But God has a plan and a purpose. And when we come into that place where we say, God, not my will, but your will be done. Then we're on the highway and the fast track to seeing those things fulfilled within our lives. Number two, God does not have a plan for your life. God has a plan and he would be happy to make you a part of it. This Christian life is not a man-centric faith. It's a God-centric faith. He is God, and he is only good all the time, and he does not change his mind, nor does he apologize for the things that he does. And the purpose of God within our lives is not that we might experience our greatest us. It's that we might experience him, and that our lives might be found complete and fulfilled in him alone. It's his plan. He invites us to be a part of his plan if we're willing. Number three, if the Lord cannot find who he's looking for, where he initially looks, then he'll find him somewhere else. Did you catch what Hannah prayed back in uh, um, verse 11 when she dedicated Samuel to the Lord as a Nazarite? She said that no razor will come upon his head. Now, I want you to realize this, that Samson and Samuel were contemporaries. They were alive on the earth at the same time. And when you see what happened when the angel came and visited Manoah in Judges chapter 15, he came to him and he said, your wife who was barren, same as Hannah, your wife who was barren is going to bear a son. And God gave the command to Manoah and to his wife that no razor is to come upon his head. Neither is he to drink of the fruit of the vine, nor is he to touch any dead thing, but he will be a Nazarite separated unto God from the womb. I believe, and I could be wrong, God can correct me on this in heaven, but I believe that God's intent was to use Samson to be the man whom ultimately Samuel was appointed to be. But Samson disqualified himself through his unyielded heart and through his chasing after the things of the flesh, he became disqualified. He was still a judge. He still experienced the strength. But he was no Samuel, not even close. 
And for you and me to think that we're just automatically going to stumble into the plan of God, living our lives according to what we think or what we want, is a foolish thought. God is looking for a heart. The Lord sought him for a man, and the Lord found. And when, by command and externals, Samson failed, God used barrenness and bitterness of heart to bring a woman into a place where her son would be completely dedicated to God, not externally, but inwardly. That was the difference between Samson and Samuel. Let me ask us this morning, is our Christianity merely externalism, wherein it's what we do, it's what we say, it's the small things that we give or sacrifice here and there? Or does God have a hold of our hearts completely that he might bring to bear his plan upon our lives? If God had raised Samson into the place where Samuel ultimately occupied, it would have been a train wreck. God needed consecration at that juncture of Israel's history. And I believe that at this juncture of human history, God needs hearts that are completely separated unto him. Number four, his will for our lives at the end of it all is that he might look at us and that he might be able to say, Jesus, the root and the offspring of, and then put your name in it, is that at the end of your life, after God has completed all the work in your life that he wants to complete in your life, that he'll be able to look at it and say that your life sprung out of himself and that it brought forth himself. He raised you up. He made you what you were. And what came out of your life was ultimately Jesus. That's whose image we're being conformed into, right? If we lead a successful life in this world, who do we look like at the end of it? We brought forth Jesus, right? And therefore we become, or he becomes, the root and the offspring of us. And that's God's ultimate will for our lives, is that we might come from him and that we might bring him forth. And then finally, number five, the preparation of the circumstances that make up our lives or make up God's plan that he'll use us in, in in our lives is equally as important and takes equally as long as the preparation of the heart. Our hearts need to be made right, but the circumstances need to be made right. And what that means is that sometimes we have to wait in order for things to unfold while we don't know yet what God is doing. It took a hundred years for God to set the stage for David to come on the scene. And here's the amazing thing that we're going to discover is that David was ready seven years before it happened. Seven years before David became the king over the nation, he was already prepared and in place. But God was still working in the circumstances to bring it to bear. And it's important that we understand that in our lives. Otherwise, we're apt to lose patience and think that God has forgotten about us or that he isn't going to use us, or that he doesn't care. But circumstances have to be prepared at the same time that our hearts are being prepared. And both of those things are important. And so we look at the life of David moving forward. Next week, we're going to look at uh, the death of the old system. And that's important. It's a very important thing, because God does not reform. Do you understand? He does not reform. He kills it and starts again. <laughs> 
He doesn't reform us, right? He calls us to be born again. He kills it and he starts again. God doesn't reform a work. He kills it and he starts again. And if God is going to do a new thing in our day, it's going to be a new thing in our day. And it necessitates the death of a system. And so we'll look at it next week as we uh, continue in the life uh, of David.